Chapter 7, Part 2 of The Curious Lore of Precious Stones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Curious Lore of Precious Stones by George Frederick Kuntz. It is not only in the works of the fathers of the Christian Church that we find precious stones used as similes of religious virtue. In Buddhist writings also we have examples of this. In the questions of King Melinda, composed perhaps as early as the third century of our era, occur the following passages. Just, O king, as the diamond is pure throughout, just so, O king, should the strenuous bhikshu, earnest in effort, be perfectly pure in his means of livelihood. This, O king, is the first quality of the diamond he ought to have. And again, O king, as the diamond cannot be alloyed with other substances, just so, O king, should the strenuous bhikshu, earnest in effort, never mix with wicked men as friends. This, O king, is the second quality of the diamond he ought to have. And again, O king, just as the diamond is set together with the most costly gems, just so, O king, should the strenuous bhikshu, earnest in effort, associate with those of the highest excellence, with men who have entered the first or second or third stage of the noble path with the jewel treasures of the Erhats, of the recluses of the threefold wisdom, or of the sixfold insight. This, O king, is the third quality of the diamond he ought to have. For it was said, O king, by the Blessed One, the God over all gods, in the Sutta Nipata. Let the pure associate with the pure, ever in recollection firm, dwelling harmoniously wise, thus shall ye put an end to griefs. The description of the New Jerusalem in the Book of Revelations finds a curious parallel in the Hindu Puranas. Here we are told that the divine Krishna, the eighth incarnation of Vishnu, took up his abode in the wonderful city of Devaraka, and was visited there by the various orders of gods and geniuses. Gods, Asuras, Gandharas, Kinaras, began to pour into Dwaraka to see Krishna and Valarama. Some descended from the sky, some from their cars, and alighting underneath the banyan tree, looked on Doraka the matchless. The city was square, it measured a hundred yojonas, and over all was decked in pearls, rubies, diamonds, and other gems. The city was high, it was ornamented with gems, and it was furnished with cupolas of rubies and diamonds, with emerald pillars, and with courtyards of rubies. It contained endless temples. It had crossroads decked with sapphires, and highways blazing with gems. It blazed like the meridian sun in summer. As compared with the description in Revelations, we cannot fail to note the lack of definiteness. Instead of the well-ordered scheme of color as represented by the twelve precious stones dedicated to the twelve tribes of Israel, the mystic Hindu city is simply a gorgeous mass of the most brilliant gems known in India. The poetic description of the royal city Kusavati, given in the Mahasudasana Sutanta, may perhaps have originated in some tradition regarding Ekpatana or at Babylon. Seven ramparts surrounded Kusavati, the materials being respectively gold, silver, beryl, crystal, agate, coral, and, for the last, all kinds of gems. In these ramparts were four gates, 
one of gold, one of silver, one of crystal, and one of jade, and at each gate seven pillars were fixed, each three or four times the height of a man, and composed of the seven precious substances that constituted the ramparts. Beyond the ramparts were seven rows of palm trees, the fourth row, having trunks of silver and leaves and fruit of gold. Then followed palms of beryl, with leaves and fruit of beryl, agate palms whose fruit and leaves were of coral, and coral palms with leaves and fruit of agate. Lastly, the palms whose trunks were composed of all kinds of gems had leaves and fruits of the same description, and when these rows of palm trees were shaken by the wind, arose a sweet sound and pleasant and charming and intoxicating. In Greek literature also there is a gem city, namely the city of the islands of the blessed, described by Lucian in his Vera Historia. The walls of this city were of emerald, the temples of the gods were formed of beryl, and the altars therein of single amethysts of enormous size. The city itself was all of gold as a fit setting for these marvelous gems. Hindu mythology tells of a wonderful tank formed of crystal, the work of the god Maya. Its bottom and sides were encrusted with beautiful pearls, and in the center was a raised platform blazing with the most gorgeous precious stones. Although it contained no water, the transparent crystal produced the illusion of water, and those who approached the tank were tempted to plunge into it and take a refreshing bath in what appeared to be clear fresh water. The Kalpa tree of Hindu religion, a symbolical offering to the gods, is described by Hindu poets as a glowing mass of precious stones. Pearls hung from its boughs, and beautiful emeralds from its shoots. The tender young leaves were corals, and the ripe fruit consisted of rubies. The roots were of sapphire, the base of the trunk diamond, the uppermost part of cat's eye, while the section between was of topaz. The foliage, except the young leaves, was entirely formed of zircons. The Chinese Buddhist pilgrim Huan Tseng, who visited India between 629 and 645 A.D., tells of the wonderful diamond throne, which according to the legend had once stood near the tree of knowledge, beneath whose spreading branches Gautama Buddha is said to have received his supreme revelation of truth. This throne has been constructed in the age called the Kalpa of the Sages. Its origin was contemporaneous with that of the earth, and its foundations were at the center of all things. It measured one hundred feet in circumference, and was made of a single diamond. When the whole earth was convulsed by storm or earthquake, this resplendent throne remained immovable. Upon it the thousand Buddhas of the Kalpa had reposed, and had fallen into the ecstasy of the diamond. However, since the world has passed into the present and last age, sand and earth have completely covered the diamond throne, so that it can no longer be seen by human eyes. In the Kalpa Sutra, written in Prakrit, one of the sacred books of the Jains, the rivals of the Buddhists, it is said that Haranagamisi, the divine commander of the foot troops, seized fourteen precious stones, the chief of which was Vajra, the diamond, and rejecting their grosser particles, retained only their finer essence to aid him in his transformations. In the same sutra, the following glowing description is given of the adornment of the surpassingly beautiful goddess Shri. 
On all parts of her body shone ornaments and trinkets composed of many jewels and precious stones, yellow and red gold. The pure cup-like pair of her breasts sparkled, encircled by a garland of kunda flowers in which glittered a string of pearls. She wore strings of pearls made by clever and diligent artists, strung with wonderful strings, a necklace of jewels with a string of dinars, and a trembling pair of earrings touching her shoulders diffused a brilliancy. But the united beauties and charms of these ornaments were only subservient to the loveliness of her face. As engraved decoration of a fine Chinese vase of white jade with delicate crown markings appear eight storks, each of which bears in its beak an attribute of one of the eight Taoist immortals. Thus we have the double gourd as attribute of the most powerful of these demigods known as Li with the iron crutch, whose aid is sought by magicians and astrologers. The magic sword with which Lu Tung Pin vanquished the spirits of evil that roamed through the Chinese empire in the form of terrible dragons. The basket of flowers, attribute of Lan Tsai Ho, the patron of gardeners and florists. The royal fan used by Han Chongli of the Chao dynasty, 1122 to 220 BC, to call again to life the spirits of the departed. The lotus flower, emblematic of the virgin Ho Xian Ku, venerated somewhat as a patron saint by Chinese housewives, and who acquired the gift of immortal life by the help of a powder of pulverized jade and mother-of-pearl. The bamboo tubes and rods with which the mighty necromancer Cheng Kuo, patron of artists, evoked the souls of the dead, flute of the musician's patron Han Tsiang Tzu, who owed his immortality to his craft in stealthily entering the Taoist paradise and securing a peach from the sacred tree of life, and lastly, the castanets of Cao Kuo Chin, especially revered by Chinese actors. The prevailing belief in India that treasures offered to the images or shrines of the gods will bring good fortune to the generous donor finds expression in many ancient and modern Hindu writings. In the Rig Veda, it is said that by giving gold the giver receives a life of light and glory. In the Samaveda Upanishad, we read, Givers are high in heaven. Those who give horses live conjointly with the sun. Givers of gold enjoy eternal life. Givers of clothes live in the moon. Another text, Haiti Smriti, reads, Coral and worship will subdue all three worlds. He who worships Krishna with rubies will be reborn as a powerful emperor. If with a small ruby, he will be born a king. Offering emeralds will produce Guyana or knowledge of the soul and of the eternal. If he worships with a diamond, even the impossible or nirvana, that is, eternal life in the highest heaven, will be secured. If with a flower of gold a man worships for a month, he will get as much wealth as Kuvera, the Lord of Rubies, and will hereafter attain to Nirvana and to Muskwa or Salvation. At Multan, one of the most ancient cities of India, situated in the Punjab, 164 miles southwest of Lahore, there was in the Hindu temple an idol having for eyes two great pearls, the eyes of the rude image of Jagannath at Puri in Bengal, Orissa are said to have at one time been formed of precious stones, as were also those of the idols of Vishnu at Chandranagore and in the great seven-walled temple at Srirangam, 
whence appears to have come the Orloff diamond. In ceremonial worship, the Hindus recognize sixteen offerings, the ninth consisting of gems and jewelry, and a divine assurance of adequate return to the giver appears in the Bhagavat Purana, where Krishna says, Whatever is best and most valued in this world, and that which is most dear to you, should be offered to me, and it will be received back in immense and endless quantity. On certain appointed days the holy images are decorated with the choicest garments and the richest jewelry in the temple treasury. This is especially the case on the day celebrated as the birthday of the respective divinity. However, the gifts are believed to retain their sacred character as dedicated objects only for a comparatively brief period, varying from a month or more for garments and vestments to ten or twelve years for jewels, such as the Navratna or the Pantratna, the prized and revered jewels, composed respectively of nine and five gems. The Pantratna usually consists of gold, diamond, sapphire, ruby, and pearl. After the gifts have ceased to be worthy of use in the temples, they may be disposed of to defray the expenses of the foundation, including the cost of supporting the numerous priests and attendants. As the objects still retain their sacred associations, they are eagerly bought by pious Hindus, who undoubtedly regard them as valuable talismans. Thus they not only serve to bring blessings upon the donors, but also constitute one of the chief sources of income for the temples. One of the oldest and perhaps the most interesting talismanic jewel is that known as the Nairatna or Naratna, the nine-gem jewel. It is mentioned in the old Hindu Ratnakastras or treatises on gems, for example, in the Naratna Pariksha, where it is described as follows. Manner of composing the setting of a ring. In the center, the sun, the ruby. To the east, Venus the diamond. To the southeast, the moon, the pearl. To the south, Mars, the coral. To the southwest, Rahu, the jacinth. To the west, Saturn, the sapphire. To the northeast, Jupiter, the topaz. To the north, the descending node, the cat's eye. To the northwest, Mercury, the emerald. Such is the planetary setting. From this description we learn that the jewel was designed to combine all the powerful astrological influences. The gems chosen to correspond with the various heavenly bodies, and with the aspects known as the ascending and descending nodes, differ in some cases from those selected in the West. For instance, the emerald is here assigned to Mercury, whereas in Western tradition this stone was usually the representative of Venus, although it is sometimes associated with Mercury also. On the other hand, the diamond is dedicated to Venus, instead of to the sun, as in the Western world. In the Naratna, the five gems known to the Hindus as the Maharatnani, or great gems, the diamond, pearl, ruby, sapphire, and emerald, were, as we see, associated with the sun and moon, Venus, Mercury, and Saturn. While the four lesser gems, Uparatnani, namely the jacinth, topaz, cat's eye, and coral represent Mars, Jupiter, Rahu, and the descending node. The two last named are very important factors in astrological calculations and are often called the dragon's head and the dragon's tail. 
These designations signify the ascending and descending nodes, indicating the passage of the ecliptic by the moon in her ascent above and descent below this arbitrary plane. In three somewhat obscure passages of the Rig Veda, there are references to the seven Ratnas. Whether these were gems cannot be determined, since the primary meaning of the word Ratna is a precious object, not necessarily a precious stone. But it is possible that we may have here an allusion to some earlier form of talisman in which only the sun, moon, and the five planets were represented. It is easy to understand that such a talisman as the Naratna, combining the favorable influences of all the celestial bodies supposed to govern the destinies of man, must have been highly prized, and we may well assume that only the rich and powerful could own this talisman in a form ensuring its greatest efficacy. For the Hindus believed that the virtue of every gem depended upon its perfection, and they regarded a poor or defective stone as a source of unhappiness and misfortune. In modern times, this talisman is sometimes differently composed. A specimen shown in the Indian court of the Paris Exposition of 1878 consisted of the following stones, coral, topaz, sapphire, ruby, flat diamond, cut diamond, emerald, amethyst, and carbuncle. Here the cut diamond, amethyst, and carbuncle take the place of the jacinth, pearl, and cat's eye. Instead of uniting the different planetary gems in a single ring, they have sometimes been set separately in a series of rings to be worn successively on the days originally named after the celestial bodies. We read in the life of Apollonius of Tyana, 1st century A.D., by Philostratus, Damis also relates that Iarchus gave to Apollonia seven rings named after the planets, and the latter wore these one by one in the order of the weekdays. Although it is not expressly stated that the appropriate stones were set in the rings, the custom of the time makes it probable that this was the case. Among the Burmese, the value for occult purposes of the nine gems composing the Naratna or Naratna is strictly determined in the following order. First, the ruby, second, the diamond or rock crystal, third, the pearl, fourth, the coral, fifth, the topaz, sixth, the sapphire, seventh, the cat's eye, eighth, the amethyst, and ninth, the emerald. That the ruby, diamond, and pearl should occupy places of honor is quite natural, but the relegation of the sapphire to sixth place after coral and topaz seems to be a rather unfair treatment of this beautiful stone. End of chapter 7, part 2. Recording by Joan Windle, Hampshire, Illinois.